Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With the WWE edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and we are still about two weeks out from WrestleMania Backlash. But nevertheless, we have plenty to talk about in the world of WWE, SmackDown, Raw, a couple people returning to television for the first time in six and nine months, respectively, and a very special uh, anniversary episode of Raw honoring Randy Orton on Monday night. So we do have a loaded show for you here as we dive into the world of WWE and we also have some business to talk about as it pertains to getting over we are going to get to all of that in a moment I would be remiss if I began any episode of this podcast you know it it's coming without reminding you that the getting over wrestling podcast so please folks Go back to being marks for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein for Vintage, Chris Vanini. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave some five-star ratings and on Apple. Also leave a review. Let people know why you listen to the show, why you have become a getting overhead and are such a fan of this wrestling podcast. All of those ratings, all of those reviews, they mean an absolute ton to us personally, but also professionally because it helps bump us up in the ratings, uh, in the rankings, I should say, and gives potential listeners more reason to consume the episodes and potentially subscribe to the channel as well. So again, those ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, super important. It, it is all about the five. Do not forget to leave those. Also, please do not forget to head on over to Twitter and follow us at Getting Overcast for episode releases, conversations live during the four major uh, wrestling shows, uh, and live audio uh, through Twitter spaces, of course, ahead of major pay-per-views. Follow us on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. Now, I did mention Vintage Chris Vanini's name in the open here. Unfortunately, due to a scheduling conflict, um, which is not something that he and I have had that frequently, he will not be on today's show. The Silver King is riding solo, but no worries. We are going to have the same great in-depth content presented in the exact same format, the show will just be a little shorter because Chris won't be here uh, to counter some of my points. But considering the fact that I'm always right, you know, is, do we really need him? That's really the question. No, of course we do. We love having Chris here. And the hope is that he returns next week for the WWE episode. Who knows? Maybe he makes a surprise appearance on Thursday to talk AEW and NXT as he did last week. That is certainly my hope, uh, but I do have to see how his schedule shakes out. Speaking of schedules, we are quickly approaching the 300th episode here of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. I am working on some special type of stuff for the show. Uh, Could be interviews, could be segments. Not exactly sure how that is going to shake out, but I am in the midst of planning for it. But something that I've already started on uh, is refreshing our sound drops, refreshing our soundboard. Um, we are combing through what we currently have. I'm going to clean out at least a third of it. That's the plan as of right now. Don't worry. The classics, of course, are always going to remain. Big meaty man slapping me. <laughs> That's what I want. 
I mean, in this show, there's always going to be a lot of beef flying in the ring. And there are too many occasions, both for AEW and WWE, where we have to remind you that in a segment, zero point zero. it gets a 0.0. So the classics are staying, don't worry. But a lot of the extraneous stuff that we only used once in a while that's gone by the wayside, we're going to clear that out. We're going to replace it with some new sound drops. Uh, so folks, if you have any suggestions, if there are specific clips of audio uh, from professional wrestling historically, or recently, WWE, AEW primarily, those make the most sense, but I know sometimes there's crazy impact in TNA clips out there. Um, Anything that you think that we should have on the show, feel free to tweet it to me, at gettingovercast. You can DM it, of course, there as well. Or you can email us, gettingoverpod at gmail.com. You can send me a video, you can send me an audio clip, a link to something on YouTube. The Silver King will cut it and add it to the soundboard. And the truth is, you know, you guys don't necessarily know the the technological stuff that we're doing on the back end in terms of making the show work, but I actually don't have a physical soundboard that I utilize with buttons and all that really good stuff. So I'm also in the process of looking for one of those. Uh, there is one that exists out there. Unfortunately, it not, not only is it super expensive and we're not in that round of uh, the year where I kind of ask you guys if you want to contribute to the show, um, but I don't think it works with my system the way I have it set up. So I need to look into that um, and really find a piece of equipment that will allow me to access the soundboard better than I currently do, which is very rough and certainly not consistent as the show goes on. So we're still looking to improve the technology, uh, the equipment, how we present the show to you. And I do hope that at a bare minimum, we have a bunch of new sound drops ready for you for the 300th episode and beyond. And my hope, of course, is that 300th episode is a special show still working on what that's going to look like right now. But we are not here to talk about the 300th episode of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. We are here to talk about the 294th episode, and that is what we are taping right now, talking WWE, SmackDown, and Raw, and of course, everything that happened in between both of those shows. So it's been a theme here on Getting Over the last couple of weeks that uh, we've been critical of Roman Reigns and his lack of television appearances. Again, I want to clarify, no one is criticizing the guy potentially for taking vacation or WWE giving him a little bit of time off. But the fact that this guy immediately removed from becoming the undisputed WWE Universal Champion, hitting that mountaintop, that paramount, that peak in his career, the fact that he has been so absent from television, so uninvolved in important storylines, does not seemingly have an opponent coming up for WrestleMania Backlash, the very next pay-per-view, just two weeks away. That has been incredibly frustrating for me in particular and and for Chris as well. Again, think of it this way. Now, Reigns did show up on SmackDown. We are going to talk about that. That is part of the main event. But the brand new undisputed WWE Universal Champion trademark, victor of the biggest WrestleMania match of all time, Now the only main event champion across both brands, the guy has not been on Raw in three weeks, and he has not been in front of a crowd across the last five television shows. Now they taped SmackDown for next week after SmackDown this past Friday. I haven't seen the spoilers. I don't know if he comes out to the crowd. I don't exactly know what they're doing with him, but he surely is not going to be on the go-home Raw ahead of Backlash next week either. 
So when I'm watching these shows and I'm watching SmackDown and Raw and I'm, I'm looking for pure entertainment value, you know, most weeks here, we tell you Raw is the superior show, even though SmackDown has Roman Reigns. SmackDown has the guy that they want to push, the woman in many ways that they want to push in Charlotte Flair. And of course, Ronda Rousey is on that show now. They have all of that. And outside of a singular week, uh, I believe it was two weeks ago where Raw, I thought was just pitiful and SmackDown had made some strides and put on a pretty decent show. When you consider the rosters top to bottom, the booking, the entertainment value, especially coming out of last week, we are back to normal. Raw is the A show in terms of quality. And it is accomplishing this without a world title or main event champion on their show right now. And even in the buildup to WrestleMania, even when Brock Lesnar was appearing on that show, the actual build for their match was taking place on SmackDown. Now, I'm not here to suggest that Raw is incredible wrestling television, or it's the best show on right now, or it's, you know, peak for Raw the last 10 years. But it is very watchable and an often enjoyable three hours each week. And I cannot say the same for a two-hour SmackDown show that should have a stronger roster, better storylines and storytelling, and better wrestling than it does. Because coming out of SmackDown this past Friday, I felt like I wasted two hours watching that show. And that should not be something anyone ever says for watching a two- or three-hour wrestling television show. They just didn't. And one of the reasons why Raw was so entertaining on Monday is because we got two returns. Someone who has not been there for nine months in Asuka and someone who has not been there for six months in Mustafa Ali. And I got tweets about it. Steven at Shibby372. This was a far better Raw after WrestleMania than the actual Raw after WrestleMania. And Jordan at LSUJordan45, very similar funny comment. Everyone knows the Raw after the Raw after the Raw after the Raw after WrestleMania is always fire. That's the one where you always see big returns. And I don't know why WWE did this. On one hand with Ali, I kind of feel as if this is something that just recently happened. They just came to some type of agreement or understanding. So therefore they threw him right back into the picture. But then again, you have Theory who just won the United States Championship, needs a new challenger. Maybe this was the plan for Ali to return here. With Becky, obviously they wanted to keep her away from Raw for a few weeks because, um, you know, they wanted her to to be depressed and angry over losing the championship in storyline. She's been appearing on live events, so that was a creative decision they made for her not to appear on TV. But why don't you have Asuka return on the Raw after WrestleMania? And then when Becky's giving her speech this week, have Asuka step up to her. It's just very interesting the way they did this where they had some pretty big names Um, Ali, mostly because he requested his damn release and went public about it. But Asuka, one of the top 10 most popular women in the entire company, they had these people ready to return. And instead of getting that, we've kind of had some lackluster stuff. But these two returns combined one after another in the second half of Raw on Monday, the final 90 minutes, it really put a bow on what was a very, very entertaining show. It also indicated to me something that we've talked about on this podcast for a long period of time now, dating back, I think, to last October, uh, coming out of the WWE draft, the Raw and SmackDown rosters continue to get more and more uneven. The only notable 
name that I can remember being added to SmackDown is Big E, who immediately got injured. And of course, Ronda Rousey, when she returned, became a SmackDown superstar, basically, based on her storytelling and and what she was doing going after Charlotte Flair winning the Royal Rumble. But think about all of the people who have come back and been added to Raw just recently. And I'm just going to, obviously, Asuka, Mustafa Ali, Ezekiel just came back, and obviously Cody Rhodes. And I'm literally just talking about people who have come back since WrestleMania. So they took a roster that was already loaded with a lot more men's singles talent on it, and they added three more men's singles wrestlers, including a main eventer in Cody Rhodes, someone who could easily get a lot of fan favorite sentiment, Mustafa Ali, and Elias into Ezekiel, who is a big baby face, who, by the way, just main evented this Raw. They added all of that to Raw. SmackDown, meanwhile, has the exact same roster that it came in with from WrestleMania that was already massively depleted. Yes, okay, they did add Gunther. Uh, I also missed that Raw added Champa. okay? So yes, they did add Gunther and Marcel Bartel. Raw also added Champa and Veer, now that I'm kind of thinking about it, so there's more. But you're talking about a minimal level of addition compared to how much Raw got that I just kind of listed. So I don't know what WWE's thought process is regarding its men's singles main event, but if you're going to have Roman Reigns as the undisputed WWE Universal Champion, and he's going to be a SmackDown superstar, and he's only going to appear on SmackDown at this point when he actually does appear on SmackDown, but you have all of your men's singles talent, for the most part, over on Raw, and he's not going to show up on that show, and those people it doesn't seem like right now are going to be challenging him, although maybe Seth Rollins gave a little bit of an indication of that this past Monday. What are you doing? Why is this your decision-making? How have you not figured out a way to even out these rosters more? So that was just a general overall thought I had coming out of Raw and SmackDown that Raw is hitting not every single right note, but a lot more right notes. And SmackDown, week after week, is becoming, to me at least, more and more frustrating. So you're going to hear that play out over the remainder of the show as I break down everything that happened across SmackDown and Raw this week in WWE. But before we get to that segment, which is called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, that's coming later in the show, let's begin here, as we always do on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, by sliding into the main event. And for the main event this week, it's really just a singular topic. It's the overall story that they told involving RK-Bro, the Usos, um, Roman Reigns, and for the first time kind of injected in this entire thing, Drew McIntyre this past Friday on SmackDown. So a lot happened on the show. It, it threaded was threaded through the, the entire episode. So let's get to it right now. We had Riddle against Jey Uso in a singles match. Riddle got backdropped into the table as Jey stared at Randy Orton in a wink to his signature move. Jey dodged a bunch of Riddle's flips, but ate the final flash and a floating bro for a 2.9 false finish. Riddle hit the draping DDT. Jimmy distracted, so Orton dumped him into the announce table. There were some nice counters before Jay hit a cool pop-up neckbreaker for another 2.9 false finish. They exchanged a running knee and super kick. Riddle got his knees up on an Uso splash and then turned Jay over for the win in 12 minutes to a huge pop and a huge hug from Orton. Uh, Riddle has now beaten both Usos clean. I thought this was a really strong television match. I went 3.75 stars and a B plus. It was also a simple continuation of the storyline without needing these guys to cut major promos. 
I'm not really sure I have much else to say here, but I need to go through the rest of this. I do think 3.75 makes this my WWE match of the week for the main roster. So very entertaining and a good television match to have on SmackDown. Now, earlier in the show, Riddle told Drew McIntyre that RK Bro was going to be lumberjacks for his match with Sami Zayn. Uh, Randy Orton said he and McIntyre were good. Their beef was squashed. And McIntyre made a comment about being cool with RK Bro since they're currently fighting the bloodline and everyone on SmackDown has been dealing with their bullshit. So while they were talking, Sammy was kind of snooping in the background, stalking them. And this was the first time that I can remember Drew made a direct comment about having a problem with the bloodline. So that immediately piqued my attention as planting the seed for the beginning of a feud. And that is something we're going to come back to. Reigns was shown backstage with Paul Heyman watching the singles match, the Jay Uso against Riddle match. Uh, obviously, he was pissed off and angry after the loss. Just being honest, I thought this entire thing with Reigns was pre-taped and spliced together because they did not advertise Reigns for the show. This after him, again, being out completely for two weeks. But then later backstage, Reigns wanted Jay to explain the loss. Jay said he slipped up. But the whole thing, based on the way Jay's chest was bruised and it looked like he just wrestled, it was clear that this was indeed live and Reigns was there. But it was a very strange decision for them to never have him come out to the ring on this entire episode, not allow the crowd to see him. And again, those first three little segments of him watching the match, it blatantly looked like it was taped and spliced together. It seemed as if the video he was watching on the HDTV was like graphically added in post-production or something like that. Maybe that was my mind getting away from me, but that is what I could have sworn I saw before this actually continued later in the show. Anyway, uh, a little bit later, Sami Zayn walked into the Bloodlines locker room. He acknowledged Reigns and praised him. He told Roman that since he has his own locker room with the Bloodline, Zayn is actually the leader of the other locker room, the main locker room, and he overheard Drew talking shit about Roman and the bloodline. Then Sammy got on his knees. He was almost begging. He said his reputation's taking a hit recently. So he asked for help in the lumberjack match in exchange for him helping Reigns in the future. Roman didn't answer, but he was pissed off that people were running their mouths and he told the Usos to handle it. This was easily, I thought, the best segment on the entire show. Yeah, the match earlier was good we talked about, but this Roman Reigns, Sami Zayn interaction Paul Heyman lurking in the background, hiding his entire body at one point behind Reigns so he could listen in. You had Jey Uso sitting in a chair, giving Sammy the side eye while he listened to his pitch. The whole production of this, the direction, how it was laid out, pitch perfect. They did a great job here. So now let's move to the main event. We had McIntyre against Zayn in a lumberjack match. The Usos predictably joined as lumberjacks just before the bell. The Usos took out RK Bro during the match. And then all the other Lumberjacks started fighting. McIntyre took punishment from them on two different occasions. Zayn disappeared. So McIntyre hit a huge Tope Cone Hero on the Lumberjacks. WWE actually bleeped a holy shit chant from the crowd, which was absolutely moronic. And then Zayn ran through the crowd, given there was no one to stop him. All the Lumberjacks were distracted. So he had free reign to get up the steps. Adam Pearce came out and he announced a steel cage match for next week. And then Jinder Mahal and Shanky attacked McIntyre for no reason whatsoever. McIntyre showed off for Sammy with a Claymore to Mahal. 
And then he screamed into Pat McAfee's headset to end the show. So let's first talk about the match. It sucked. It was terrible, straight up. And then Pierce comes out and he tries to stop Sammy from running away next week by booking a match, perhaps the only match in WWE, where, wait for it, Sammy can win by running away. Like escaping the cage in WWE, whether it's through the door or over the top, is a stipulation. Now, (laughs) that to me is mind-boggling that a WWE official who is supposed to be smart and in control of the situation would book a match like this when there's at least three other matches that exist, and there may even be more, but there's at least three others that actually confine you to an area. One is a dog collar match. Another is a uh, strap match, obviously, same concept, but your wrist instead of your neck. And then, of course, WWE has Hell in a Cell that has a roof on it that you literally cannot escape. That is the entire point of the structure. In fact, I believe in Germany, um, the Elimination Chamber, I think it is, not Hell in a Cell, is called No Escape. So technically, there's another structure, Elimination Chamber. The point is a not, you know, foresighted, but a foresighted cage with a top is what's needed to ensure that Sami Zayn does not run away and actually fights Drew McIntyre. But when you look at this from a broader perspective, not so much Pierce making the decision and how stupid the decision is in kayfabe, but in reality, it does make a little bit of sense because when you come into this match, McIntyre versus Sami, which by the way is going to open SmackDown next week, they announced this, I presume that's because of NBA competition they want to start really hot. Well, there's a couple things that can happen. One, he can escape, which continues the feud. Drew doesn't really get his hands on him. Two, Sammy basically told the bloodline last week, hey, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. There's a potential here that the Usos could interfere maybe, or even Roman Reigns could interfere and help Sami Zayn escape by distracting Drew McIntyre, getting into the cage, you know, dominating him, whatever the case might be. So again, I didn't read the spoilers. I don't know what happens next week. I'm purely just spitballing here. So there is the potential for this to pay off. And given Hell in a Cell is not the next pay-per-view at Backlash, but a few weeks later, they could get there. I mean, they would have to stretch it a little bit. Maybe they do a strap match in the interim that Sami Zayn gets some bolt cutters or scissors and he cuts himself free of the strap and runs away. That could work. Um, They could do a contract signing for a Hell in a Cell match where Sammy runs away and refuses to sign the contract. And then next week, Drew McIntyre tracks him down and gets him to sign. So if they want to pay off this feud inside Hell in a Cell, they do have the opportunity to do it. They could also even run an injury angle for Drew for a week or two. But again, in the moment, booking a steel cage match, the only match where escaping actually allows you the opportunity to win is nonsensical from a kayfabe WWE standpoint. But lastly, let's get away from that and get to Reigns. So I mentioned this already, but he returns to TV for the first time in two weeks. That's great. He's back finally. But I don't understand how WWE, which overpromotes stuff and tells you that Big E is going to cash in the Money in the Bank briefcase, so you should watch Raw. 
I don't understand why they would not have promoted and advertised Reigns as returning to TV on SmackDown, especially given they were up against not one, but two NBA games. So again, they don't advertise him for TV. He does not appear in front of the crowd, even for a second, and this is a live broadcast. And the Shinsuke Nakamura storyline, we thought we were getting the Friday after WrestleMania, was at best not followed up, and at worst, completely dropped. Reigns was back to his normal, brooding Roman, angry at the Usos for disappointing him, and with two weeks until Backlash, it now seems he is not going to be defending the titles on the show. And I don't hate that necessarily, because I am totally fine with WWE running a pay-per-view, potentially with an, a, a winner-take-all title unification, RK-Bro and the Usos, two of the most over-tag teams in the company, main eventing that show, that would be great. If they make Ronda Rousey and Charlotte Flair the main event, on one hand, cool because it's a women's match main eventing. On the other hand, it's nowhere near as exciting. People do not care about it as much as this one. So I don't get it. I don't know why you would put forward a pay-per-view without Reigns fighting. I don't know why you would start a storyline with Shinsuke Nakamura and not follow it up and seemingly kickstart a Drew McIntyre storyline. Maybe Roman's injured. And if he is, I'd be willing to excuse a little bit of this. The silver lining, of course, is they did plant the seed for the McIntyre feud. But that should be saved at least until Money in the Bank, if not SummerSlam, or the United Kingdom show, which is now the month after SummerSlam. And those three pay-per-views, Money in the Bank, SummerSlam, the UK show, are 10, 14, and 18 weeks away. So yes, you can stretch Drew through June with Sammy, but you got to get something for Roman to do in that time. Otherwise, you're throwing together Reigns and McIntyre, and you're at risk of taking something that should probably be the end of the Reigns storyline, McIntyre winning. Or if not, you're risking taking something that should be a really hot match. Maybe you get two matches out of it. Let's say SummerSlam and the UK show, because you want Drew McIntyre in a huge match. And what bigger match is there than Roman Reigns? Yes, I know Tyson Fury is an option, but you could put him against Sheamus. There's other options for Fury. Uh, Ideally, you would want McIntyre against Reigns either at um, SummerSlam and the UK show, or at least Money in the Bank and SummerSlam. But again, those are months down the line at this point. To start it now, it makes me very concerned they're going to get this thing started at Hell in a Cell, which to me is just not appropriate. It's... I don't think that we waited all this time for Reigns and and McIntyre to have a real feud just to kind of throw it away at Hell in a Cell. Even if you do Hell in a Cell and Money in the Bank, that's two shows, right? It really should be, again, Money in the Bank and SummerSlam or SummerSlam and the UK, UK show. So continuing our conversation from last week and really ending it, I literally have no idea what they are doing with Reigns right now. I don't understand the decision-making with Backlash and Nakamura the decision-making to keep him off television as long as they have, to potentially not have him show up on any of the last four Raws, if we're extrapolating to next week, ahead of Backlash. So your undisputed champion, who now lords over both shows, just completely ignores the show on Monday nights that's been three hours long and aired for decades at this point. 
I, I don't understand the decision making with Roman Reigns. Maybe something on this taped SmackDown this Friday will open my eyes to it and I'll suddenly understand it. But honestly, I just have a feeling I'm going to continue to be frustrated. I was told that the SmackDown that they taped was not a good episode. So to me, that means nothing significant with Roman Reigns. But again, that's me kind of guessing here. We will need to see what happens uh, this coming Friday. And of course, we will discuss that in our next WWE edition of the Getting Overcast, which will also be the WrestleMania Backlash Ultimate Preview, same bat time, same bat channel, next week on Tuesday. But that is the entire main event this week. So with that, let's move forward and slide into our next segment, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. So Raw opened on Monday with Randy Orton's 20-year anniversary celebration. Riddle was on the mic with superstars at ringside, and they aired a tremendous video package. No surprise there. Part of the gimmick was that RK-Bro has reinvigorated Orton's career. Orton thanked everyone and said he's not going anywhere anytime soon. He really put over Mick Foley for legitimizing him. He was really the one that helped him become the legend killer with the way he was able to take Mick out. And he said he's having more fun with Riddle than ever before. Cody Rhodes entered as a surprise guest, obviously rekindling the stuff from Legacy back in the day. They hugged. Riddle got jealous when they hugged, which I thought was pretty funny. And Seth Rollins interrupted, saying Cody was stealing the spotlight again and that Rollins is the future, not any of the people in the ring. Ezekiel stepped in and then Kevin Owens lost his mind again. Then the Usos cut a good enough promo to set up an obvious eight-man tag team main event. This was straight out of like Teddy Long era SmackDown, but while it was convoluted, all the parts were good and Adam Pearce did a good job in the Teddy Long role making the match and Orton getting honored this way to start the show, um, receiving that type of ovation and really like a 25 minute ceremony, that was pretty great. So very happy that all of that happened. Uh, Scoops at EJ Maroon, M-A-R-O-U-N. He wrote in, do you think, Orton specifically mentioning and really going out of the way to do so, Mick Foley, was a subtle shot at Taker not mentioning Mick in his Hall of Fame speech, or was it just a coincidence? So I don't think Orton, given the respect he has for Taker and vice versa, something they both talked about, I don't think he would go after Taker like that on purpose. But at the same time, I had the exact same thought in my head that Orton did it perhaps to make sure Foley got his just due, but regardless of Taker. Like, I think Taker not mentioning Foley put it in Orton's head that when he was doing the speech, he should make sure to mention Mick and really put him over. But I don't think he did it out of spite for the Undertaker forgetting. I just think it kind of gave him the motivation to do so, to kind of say, hey, Mick, we all love you. More as... Something positive for Mick, not negative towards The Undertaker. But no matter what, Foley deserves that acknowledgement, and I was really glad that he got it here. Uh, The Street Profits later ran down the whole show in a promo, as they often do. They claimed that they are the number one contenders for what will be the unified tag team titles after Backlash. Backstage, Owens was commiserating with Alpha Academy, still talking shit about Ezekiel. When Rollins walked up acting like everything was good, KO went off on his ass. He was screaming about the insult last week. Rollins not having his back, etc. 
The Usos came in to try to get them on the same page. Rollins rolled his eyes at all of their tribal chief bloodline nonsense. And then he tried to bond with Owens, but KO just dipped out. He didn't want any of it. There were a couple parts of Raw this Monday that did lack continuity, but they stayed on top of this from last week. They continued the storyline. They were blatant about it. And they made sure that even though Rollins and KO were in the ring together, there was still animosity there. And that made for a very strong pre-match segment, something that we did not get at a very, with a very similar storyline a little bit later in the show. But nevertheless, this backstage stuff with the Prophets, uh, with Owens and Rollins and Alpha Academy, also good. So, so far, one overall segment, two goods. And lastly, we got the match, RK-Bro, Cody, and Ezekiel against Usos, Rollins, and Owens. Rollins hit Riddle with an inverted superplex before a commercial. Orton got chance for a hot tag, but got pulled off the apron. Owens hit Riddle with a senton bomb for a 2.9 false finish. Orton hit his snap power slams. He backdropped Jay and Rollins and Owens into the announce table. There were loud Randy chants. He hit Jimmy with the draping DDT, but Rollins broke up an RKO attempt. So Cody hit Rollins with a disaster kick. Orton hit an RKO. Ezekiel helped Orton with an RKO on Owens. Riddle helped with a pop-up RKO on Jay. And then Randy caught Jimmy flying for the midair RKO and the 1-2-3 to end the show and end the celebration. The finish, yes, it was obvious and it was gratuitous, but it was to a specific end. Every once in a while, a chaotic multi-man main event like this and a finish like that is completely acceptable. This was very Attitude Era, but it was entertaining as hell here. The crowd loved it. A terrible, terrible Knoxville, Tennessee crowd. Loved this, ate it up, got very loud for it. Orton got honored. Three different feuds were all respected within the confines of an eight-man tag team match. That's very difficult to do. I gave this 3.25 stars and a B. It wasn't the strongest match, but it was very good. So everything they did here for Randy Orton, one, two, three, good, good, good. Uh, We also had a Raw Women's Championship match on the show. Bianca Belair defending against Sonya Deville. Belair was talking to Kane backstage and got a big announcement being from Knoxville. She was unfortunately wearing Tennessee Vols colors. You know, as good as she may look, anyone in Tennessee Vols colors just looks worse. That's how it is. Deville got thrown over the announce table and counted out with an injury in one minute. So she restarted the match with no countouts. Then she hit Belair with two chair shots for disqualification in one minute. So she restarted the match again as no countout and no DQ. That immediately brought out Carmella and Queen Zelina. Let's not forget, Mella and Zelina broke up two weeks ago. Absolute shit continuity. They kind of explained it later. Not to my taste. We'll get to that. So now it's three on one for Bel Air with no faces willing to help her, apparently. No one in the backstage area has Bianca Belair's back as she's in a title match getting her ass kicked. Well, you would hope three on one. DeVille hit a DDT on a chair for a 2.8 count. Belair ran Sonya into a steel chair propped between the ropes and then hit a KOD on her to retain the title in a combined nine minutes, I guess, between all three segments. Technically, she went three and oh. She got three title defenses all in one segment. Uh, Mella and Zelina, every single time we saw them, were easily dispatched as if they were just garbage. They didn't do anything. After commercial, Sonia backstage said Mella and Zelina screwed her over, and now they don't get the title opportunities that DeVille promised her. They complained about that, saying they did their job. 
So DeVille smacked the shit out of both of them. Seriously, she fully connected to both of their faces and it was loud as hell. And they just took the slaps because she's the authority figure, I guess, and can fire them. But I cannot stress how poorly this entire thing was booked. Instead of giving us a legitimate title match to enjoy, it was all bullshit. Even if they wanted to do the match restart gimmicks, it could have ended up as a street fight. WWE actively ruined the credibility of all three women. And then they made Mella and Zelina look absolutely pathetic. Now look, are they legitimate women's title challengers now that the roster is built up again? That DeVille is wrestling and Asuka's back over on SmackDown. Lacey Evans is back. Soon, hopefully, Bailey is back. Rhea Ripley is now heel. You know, do we need Mella and Zelina as legitimate title challengers? No, we don't. But you also broke them up as a tag team when you need women's tag teams. And given all of the singles talent that WWE now has in the women's division due to returns and call-ups and all this stuff... Why the hell would you not allow them to remain a tag team? They looked pathetic. The storyline of breaking them up is pathetic. The storyline of allowing them to come back together, even if they had a side eye on each other, just because they were promised title matches by Sonya Deville, that was pathetic. I get it. I get the storyline, okay? They could have come out separately, or they could have acknowledged that they were working together begrudgingly under duress backstage. Sure, yes, Belair looked strong overcoming three women. And yes, she did technically go 3-0 and on the night, but she hardly faced significant adversity given the match was so short. It never looked like she was actually in trouble. My expectation here was that Sonya Deville and Bianca Belair was going to be good. And I'm actually shocked, even though I expected a schmaz finish of some type. I'm actually shocked that it was this bad. This is her uh, Later in the show, Becky Lynch appeared for the first time since losing the Raw Women's Championship. She said she hit rock bottom and there's nowhere else to go but up, so she promised a legendary comeback. Becky said she would win the title back and be champion forever when she started naming all the women on the roster that she could easily beat until Asuka returned and interrupted Becky. Becky sold the shit out of the return Her face went ghost, totally white. I think she dropped the mic. She was totally stunned. Then she was really pissed off seeing Asuka interrupt her moment. Asuka got a good chant at the beginning, promised to stop Lynch because no one is ready for Asuka. Becky tried to hit her, but Asuka ducked it and got an ovation from the crowd. There wasn't much to this, just being candid, but Lynch nailed her promo. It was great to see Asuka for the first time in nine months. The crowd did pop initially, But it sucked after that. It should have been constantly loud, constantly chanting for Asuka. If this happened in Detroit or Chicago, any of these major cities that WWE's recently stopped in, it would have been awesome. Instead, Knoxville, Tennessee, they were happy to see her, but then they treated her kind of like an afterthought. What's more exciting, though, out of this entire thing, is we are about to get, WWE is about to give us a main event level women's program not involving a championship. How freaking exciting. It really is not that difficult. This was obviously good. This is such good shit. I mean, seeing Asuka back anytime 
man, super, super excited. And there's also a bit of a story that can be told here about Becky relinquishing the Raw title to Asuka after Money in the Bank, Asuka beating Lynch, I think, for the SmackDown title. I believe that was at the Royal Rumble prior to Becky entering the Rumble, winning, and then becoming Becky Two Belts. I just hope they get to this next week as this feud continues building going forward because my my goal, what I want, is for them to skip WrestleMania Backlash. They should not have a match on that show. Their first match should be Hell in a Cell, and ideally, they have a second match at Money in the Bank. Again, a scenario where you could have made the argument if you weren't going to return Asuka immediately after WrestleMania, maybe they should have waited until the Raw after Backlash and then gone ahead and developed the program going further with this match, Becky Lynch and Asuka, happening at Money in the Bank or SummerSlam, just like I'm talking about with Drew McIntyre and Roman Reigns. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Simply talking about best case scenario versus what they're actually doing. I have to believe there's someone else on the roster that Becky could have feuded with in the interim, or they could have kept her off TV for the remainder of the month. There was only one more Raw. They could have kept her off one more Raw, brought her back at Backlash and done the same thing. But these are nitpicks. These are just, you know, examples of me talking it through, thinking about what else WWE could have done. This was very well executed. Good promo from Becky. Really good return, of course, from Asuka. Extremely excited to see one of the MVPs of the pandemic era back healthy in WWE, ready to contribute. And by the way, not only is she back, she's not in a women's tag team. She's not in the low card. She's immediately back in the main event with the most over woman in the entire company. Over on SmackDown, we had a contract signing for Charlotte Flair versus Ronda Rousey in an I Quit match. This actually opened the show. Drew Gulak this week was on a tryout to be Pierce's assistant and ran out with the contract. He tried to do the PowerPoint gimmick from back in the day when Charlotte shut him up and Ronda whispered into the mic again. Uh, Flair interrupted anything anyone said by reminding that she beat Rousey at WrestleMania. Rousey said that she'd make Flair admit Rousey is better while abandoning her title by saying, I quit. Flair flipped over the table before Rousey could sign and started hitting her with a kendo stick that was hidden. Then Rousey destroyed her with the kendo stick. Gulak ripped it away from Rousey and tried to get her to sign. So Rousey, the baby face, remember, hit him with Piper's pit and then signed the contract while putting him in an armbar. Again, I will remind you, Ronda Rousey is a baby face, yet she's picking on this guy really for no reason whatsoever. Admittedly, the finish was kind of cool the way she signed it while she was putting a submission move on him. But it was simply some whipped cream on top of a sundae made of dog shit. Gulak was once again the best part of the entire thing. This was bad. Ronda Rousey needs to go to speech class. She needs to learn how to orate on a microphone in front of a crowd. I don't know how WWE sees her come out every week whispering into the mic and says, yeah, this is fine. Let's keep going with this. At a minimum, they should make Gulak her spokesperson. At a maximum, they should make Paul Heyman her spokesperson or do something where they find someone in this company who can speak for Ronda Rousey. Either that or don't allow this woman to talk or when you do allow her to talk, only have it be taped promos and vignettes. Because at this point, every single time she opens her mouth, she makes herself look more and more like a joke. This segment, again, with the exception of Gulak, was straight up 
bad. I'm bored, brother. And boring. I forgot to say boring. Uh, Boss and Glow were in the ring on SmackDown for a championship celebration. They had matching gear finally. Naomi talked about backing up her talk. Uh, Sasha Banks said they're more than a team, they're sisters. They talked about breaking up two teams already. So literally the only team remaining in WWE, Natalia and Shayna Baszler, they walked out. Normal confrontation, nothing special. The fact that the champions have a tag team name, a finisher, rents due is what it's called, and matching gear, that alone makes this good. But they must create or bring up more teams and treat this division better. You have Casey Catanzaro, I believe her name was recently changed to Katana Chase and Caden Carter. You have them in NXT. They're ready for a call-up. You have Queen Zelina and Carmella, who never should have been broken up. You have other women on this roster that you could put into a tag team and actually create something meaningful, but they just refuse to do so. I don't understand it. Either create a tag team division with multiple teams. There should be a minimum of four teams at any given time. Those teams, by the way, can have competitors who also compete in singles, but when needed for the tag team picture, they form together as a team, wrestle as a team, and go after the titles. So either do that or get rid of the titles. Those are your two options. Boss and Glow, I'm glad they're champions. It seems like they're trying to restore a little bit of respect back to the titles and to the division. But my biggest issue with the division is that there should never be a situation where the titles need respect restored back to them. Same thing for the Intercontinental Championship. Same thing for the United States Championship. Uh, On Raw, Edge cut another promo from his throne saying Priest would end Balor. He mocked fans for their criticisms of his new look and then talked shit directly to AJ Styles, explaining that he injured his shoulder on purpose because of the phenomenal forearm. Priest said Balor was guilty and he was the punishment. This was not up to Edge's insanely high standards. And honestly, the production of these backstage promos is not doing him or Priest any justice. I don't understand why they're sitting in an undecorated black room. It was good enough. That's about it. But I'm really just not loving this promo style from Edge. Last week was a huge improvement. This week, he again is talking about like local sports teams. Why are you, if you're this dark brooding guy who's dealing in punishment and, you know, judging people's characters, why are you concerned about the Tennessee Volunteers? I should be concerned about the Tennessee Volunteers. I'm a guy with a podcast here who also happens to be a Florida Gators fan, okay? Allow me to shit on the Tennessee Volunteers. Allow the Miz when he's in the ring who isn't doing a dark brooding character or Austin Theory or Becky Lynch, anyone like that. Allow them to shit on the local sports team and get the heat. Kevin Owens, Seth Rollins, all those people. Edge, who given his gimmick should be focused on a lot more important things, uh, doesn't need to be shitting on local sports teams. I believe he did it like against the Buffalo Sabres last week and now the Tennessee Volunteers. He's better than it. Um, hopefully the group is better than it. They just got to do something better with these guys. Uh, while booking Balor and Priest, of course, the match immediately made me concerned for another Balor loss. The idea of Styles and Balor teaming up against these guys was intriguing. That was my mindset before going into the match. So we got Finn Balor versus Damian Priest. There was a really cool entrance with Priest standing next to Edge on the throne. I think it like floated a few feet forward before it ended and then Priest's music hit and he made his normal entrance to the ring. They were also announced as Judgment Day. That's the name of the group, uh, which so far as of right now, of course, is just a team. Edge and Damian Priest, really good name. Uh, Harkening back to the Judgment Day pay-per-view, I assume 
WWE owned the trademark, whoever decided that it was the name of the group, whether it was Edge, Creative, them together, that's awesome, okay? Really good name, glad they're reusing it. Extremely solid name for a group. Uh, Balor ate a razor's edge on the ring apron. He hit a couple sling blades, and then he got distracted climbing the ropes because Edge, who was sitting in his throne 50 feet away at the top of the entrance, stood up. And by the way, I said 50 feet. I mean 50 yards. The guy was 50 yards away from Balor. He stood up as Balor was climbing the ropes. So that apparently in WWE is enough to distract the baby face. Priest took Balor off the ropes, hit South of Heaven, and then hit a new flatliner finisher for the win in seven minutes. Commentary, credit where it's due, sold Balor as having a lingering neck injury and Edge apparently standing counts as a distraction for a babyface, like I said. It's like WWE realizes they shouldn't be having Balor lose, so they want to protect him in losses the last two weeks, but they're just doing a really shitty job of protecting him. Also, the flatliner for Priest is a horrible finisher given this guy's other options. Like, okay, I understand they wanted to get rid of the Reckoning because Cody has crossroads. Fine. The Razor's Edge, which he's displayed and has used, by the way, to take out Balor in recent weeks, use that as the finisher. South of Heaven, a really good sit-down chokeslam move. Use that as the finisher. The Flatliner, without a name, nothing special about it, absolutely horrible. Really bad decision, whoever did that. I enjoyed the presentation here. I cannot defend the booking of Balor. Maybe they're going to prove me wrong and he'll tag with Styles and it's all going to make sense. But for now, this is a provisional bad, at least for the concept of everything that they're doing. We had Miz TV with Theory. The Miz put himself over and said Theory was a young version of himself. Theory said he would live up to the Miz's accomplishments and Mr. McMahon's investment in him. He said he would be remembered as the United States champion. Miz convinced him to not do open challenges or let people demand title shots. Suddenly, out of nowhere, Mustafa Ali entered. Miz asked if he still worked in WWE. Theory said he thought Ali took his ball and went home. Those are references, of course, to Ali demanding his release and not going to WWE TV recently. Um, He even tweeted that he wanted out and was very public about it. He has multiple years left on his contract, though, so apparently he's back. Uh, They made an Ezekiel joke that he's Mufasa Ali. And Ali said the only joke is the Miz's in-ring ability. And he was hoping to be the first challenger for the United States Championship. Theory turned him down, which is really what Miz told him to do. So I kind of like that. Ali called him all biceps and no balls. Miz tried to duck out of a challenge. But Theory texted McMahon, who made the match official via text message. Miz said he would make Ali wish he got his walking papers. So a third reference to him basically quitting WWE. So we got Ali versus Miz after the commercial. After eating a lot of offense, Ali got the crowd going a little bit. He had a rolling neckbreaker for a near fall. Miz hit a spike DDT for a near fall. Ali got pushed off the ropes and sold an injured knee. But as Miz attempted a figure four, Ali locked his legs together for a pinfall win in seven minutes. Then as he was walking up the ramp, Champa blindsided him with no immediate explanation given there either. There's lots of positives here though. Let's get with those. First of all, Ali's back. Great. Seems to be cutting his own promos. Really good. And he's a damn babyface, seemingly being put in the mid-card title picture with a win over a former WWE champion upon his return. All really solid. He also got some decent pops from a terrible crowd. I even liked the early references to him walking out. 
Three, probably one too many. Obviously, this entire thing was good. I do have a couple notes, though. First of all, this felt like a rushed return from Ali, given he did not have any new gear, a new theme, or anything. This guy needs to be repackaged. And he should have been repackaged upon making a return with, as a minimum, a new graphics package and a new theme. Because his theme is the shitty retribution theme that is not applicable to him as a babyface and also just is bad. It's just a bad theme straight up. So this was either rushed or WWE is a little tentative to go deep on him so quickly, they kind of want to make sure he's going to stick around. The Champa attack wasn't my favorite given Ali is going after the United States Championship and even on Raw Talk, which I never watch as you guys know, but I saw that Ali was going to be on it, so I chose to watch it. They asked him about the attack and he said, whatever, Champ has got shit going on with him. My focus is theory. My focus is the United States Championship. So I don't know what they're doing with Champa. Um, maybe it's going to play out next week and it's going to become a little bit more obvious. Uh, Tommaso Champa, by the way, did lose his first name and he's only Champa. Here's the truth. We've always called him Champa, right? Just like Cesaro is Cesaro and Rusev is Rusev. There are certain names in WWE that when they shorten them, Austin Theory is a great example. It makes no sense. You get angry about it. Matt Riddle, another example. Doesn't make any sense why they shortened those names. Very stupid. But there's also another group of names where when they shorten them, not only does it make sense, many times it can be better. I'm not necessarily saying Champ is better than Tommaso Ciampa. I like people having full names, but it's certainly not bad. It doesn't downgrade him. It doesn't bury him. There is absolutely nothing wrong with Champa being Champa, as far as I'm concerned. But I do want to see what develops here. I'm not sure what they're doing from a storytelling perspective. Ali shouldn't lose to Champa, and Champa shouldn't lose to Ali. So if they do a feud, it's almost, I don't want to say it's a no-win situation, but someone is going to come out of it you know, not looking as strong as they should, given both of them are, in Champa's case, kind of debuting, in Ali's case, returning to WWE. But look, we do have Ali as a babyface. We have Champa as a heel. All is right in the world. This was good. And I'm, more than anything, I'm really excited that Ali's back. And I guess he was able to come to some understanding or agreement with WWE. And hopefully that bridge isn't burned. Hopefully this is a situation where WWE realized there was a lot of support behind Ali. Ali made a really good case for himself. He gets a push and he becomes this upper mid-carter that I think we all believe he can be. That was a good one, yeah. Uh, Rhea Ripley backstage says she's finally opened her eyes to being thrown into the women's tag team division and her partners dragging her down after she saw so much success when she was by herself as a singles competitor. It sounded Judgment Day-esque given her verbiage, but Liv Morgan attacked before it could go any further, and they eventually got separated to end the segment. Simple feud continuation, and it was well done, so this was good. Uh, Xavier Woods on SmackDown fought Butch in a singles match. We got plenty of brutality and joint manipulation, so look, they've changed Pete Dunne's name, and they've made it worse. There's no question the name Butch sucks, but they haven't changed his style, and that is a positive. Butch escaped the fireman's carry by cranking Woods' ear, and hit his release vertical suplex for a near fall. Xavier finally caught him with backwoods off the step through DDT for a win in nine minutes. Butch lost his mind again. He threw a security guard over the barricade and walked off through the crowd while seething. This was solid overall. The crowd unfortunately never popped for the match. And the whole fit throwing gag, it just makes this guy 
seem like a child, not a badass bruiser. So I really hope WWE rethinks that. But overall, I'm actually going to give this a good. Uh, Bobby Lashley on Raw faced Omos in an arm wrestling match. MVP got what chance from the jump and cut a relatively worthless promo. But this started clean with Omos dominating. MVP's trash talk gave Lashley a second wind and then a third wind until he finally won. MVP distracted Omos kept driving Lashley's head into the table, which was funny because there were cushions on the table, so it couldn't have hurt that much. Omos then picked up the table and rammed the side of it into Lashley's chest and neck before chucking it out of the ring. MVP later made a rematch challenge official. So they are going to fight again at WrestleMania Backlash. I thought I was going to hate this, but it was decently executed. And both Lashley and Omos got instances where they were going to look strong. We know these do huge numbers on YouTube. I don't have... Chris here to actually look and tell you what the numbers are, but the arm wrestling segments in WWE history usually do great on social media. So to my absolute surprise here, I'm going to say good. However, I do want to add one note. WWE, after Lashley got in the ring and they stood off from each other, they aired the most obvious and moronic piped in audio of cheers to date. I have, I mean, they've done it before where it's been noticeable. Never has it been worse than when they did it in this segment. Um, the Knoxville crowd sucked. I've noticed recently that WWE has gone away from the piped in noise, but that's because Raw's and SmackDown's as of late have been, like I said earlier, in Detroit, in Chicago, in some pretty damn big cities where they didn't need it. These small towns, I'm not saying WWE should not book small towns. And I'm not saying really that Knoxville or Buffalo are small towns. Buffalo is obviously a major city. Knoxville, of course, is one of the biggest cities in Tennessee, largely because of the university, but these non-major cities, these populations, non-population centers, I guess, is maybe the best way I can put it, places where there are not major airports, um, they, there's a, WWE is struggling to elicit fan responses consistently from those venues as they do with larger venues. They got to figure that out. The goal should not be, oh, well, we can rely on piped in audio during live shows, the goal should be we got to make our fans care more about our product and we got to do things such as give them longer matches with people they like with really good moves and clean finishes. WWE needs to get back to doing things that are going to actively and genuinely pop the crowd and not rely on this bullshit canned audio. Over on SmackDown, Ricochet was backstage with Aaliyah. She was singing his praises. Rick said he wants to be one of the greatest intercontinental champions ever. Jinder Mahal wanted another title match. Rick said he would fight anyone. So Shanky said he wanted a match. This SmackDown roster, I mentioned it earlier. It is so fucking thin that Shanky, Shanky got an Intercontinental Championship match simply by asking for it. This guy has only had 14 matches ever in WWE. This is going to be his first singles match in WWE for the Intercontinental Championship. This is a joke. At least Jinder, when he made the challenge, could claim he's a former world champion. He's had other titles. Okay, they made that match. He deserved the opportunity. They didn't even end up throwing the match away on the show. They're actually booking it for this coming Friday. Again, it was taped, so the audience got to see it anyway. But holy shit, was this bad. I mean, this speaks not only to just dumb booking that Shanky would get this, but 
a, a scenario in which your roster is so thin that you do not have enough people to legitimately challenge for the Intercontinental Championship. Think about the last challengers here. Umberto and Angel, who beat Ricochet because they both screwed him over to get into a triple threat match. Then Jinder Mahal, who's barely on television, and then Shanky. Those are his last four Intercontinental title challengers since he won the strap from Sami Zayn. That's a problem. You need to bolster this roster. I'm glad Ricochet is Intercontinental Champion. But when I look back at it, you look at the roster, there's almost no one else on the roster who could be Intercontinental Champion. Because you have Sami and Drew doing something. Roman's busy. Gunther, they're not going to put him there yet. Although I wouldn't be surprised if he is the one who beats Ricochet, especially because it's the Intercontinental title. You can talk about being international, all that type of stuff. So, you know, I see that happening a little bit down the line. And obviously Sheamus uh, and his crew and New Day, they're embroiled in something. But your roster is so thin that you have Ricochet fighting Shanky for the Intercontinental Championship. No, I don't think Shanky's going to win. I'm not concerned about it next week. But holy shit, man. Put Baron Corbin in there. Let Ricochet beat him. Um, Let Madcap Moss uh, be in there. Let Ricochet beat him. I don't know. Someone with any level of credentials other than Shanky. Speaking of, Madcap Moss uh, fought Angel in a singles match. Happy Corbin stepped up backstage and said he's willing to forgive Moss, but Moss answered with a bad joke. Actually, it was a bald joke, not a bad joke. It was a bad bald joke. Uh, Moss dominated Angel, fought off Umberto, and won with the punchline. Corbin predictably attacked after the bell and hit end of days. Then he stole the Andre the Giant trophy. Look, for a lower mid-card feud, it's perfectly fine. Moss is already kind of over. But Corbin stealing the trophy after stealing the Claymore from Drew. I mean, it's just the exact same storyline. I said it last week. If you give this guy back the name Riddick or give him a new gimmick with some real entrance music, WWE has something here with Moss. The crowd organically likes him. This was good, but it could be so much better if they just allow people to be themselves or give them gimmicks that are more palatable to an audience and don't include words like madcap, which hasn't been used probably since the 1960s, if not before that. Fix this up and you have something here, but I'm still going to say good. It was just barely good. Uh, Gunta fought Teddy Goods on SmackDown. Gunta dominated with chops and won with a powerbomb in two minutes. Ludwig Kaiser's introduction, the entrance, the match, it got zero response from the crowd. Again, You can't really blame the crowd when WWE has done nothing to get Gunther over. It may be time to just immediately put him with roster members who can actually sell for him and create some interest because this right now is not heading in a positive direction. I'm not going to call it bad when there was nothing wrong with it in terms of the concept of the match or the work we got. So it was good, but it was not that good. On Raw, we basically had the same thing. Veer Mahan against Sam Smothers. Veer murdered this guy. He hit the million dollar arm and the cervical clutch for the submission win in about 30 seconds. Then he brutalized the jobber at ringside in the post-match. He did a box jump onto the announce table. That was pretty impressive. And then he did another cervical clutch. As I said last week, it was backwards going from him killing the damn Mysterios to now beating up jobbers. But I do think Rey Mysterio is sick or injured. Something happened there. So they probably are delaying the storyline. And Veer ultimately is being treated well ever since he came you know, they've been treating him well, which is really what you want after you uh, show up somewhere. Uh, So look, I'm not just seeing any crowd reaction here. That's the biggest issue. 
I'll repeat, good, but not that good. Very similar to Gunther. The problem is Gunther is someone who should be built into a main eventer. Veer in his career is probably never going to be more than a mid-carder, if that. On SmackDown, Lacey Evans delivered part three of her story. She talked about her father getting high, her mother helping her with her makeup, and how she learned to be self-sufficient. She gave the same line, saying, she's no better than the other superstars, but they're no better than her. This is almost, for me, too hard of a push for a babyface turn. And while, look, I respect the effort here, the presentation has sucked. I don't care one iota about Lacey Evans. Like, maybe this worked on some people, but it hasn't worked on me. I just don't understand what they're doing. I don't know why they think she's going to get a huge response. Maybe she will. Maybe when she shows up, I'm assuming it's going to be the SmackDown after Backlash. Maybe she gets big cheers and, and rolls into a feud with Charlotte Flair and beats her for the title and she's super over as a babyface champion. Like, that is plausible for that to happen. But for me, it's super, super forced. Again, the presentation has sucked. Her staring into the camera, recounting the story. I would have done this entire thing as video vignettes going through her photo albums. Maybe she's sitting on the couch with her daughter and husband. I don't Actually, I don't know if she's married. I assume she is, but, um, or a significant other, whatever the case. Sitting on the couch, going through photo albums, telling her daughter her story and, and teaching her a lesson about perseverance and overcoming obstacles. They could have really done something here to show off her being a mom and in a different phase of her life, maybe even talking about how, you know, she thought it was better to be sassy and this Southern belle who could lord over everyone. But what she realized is she really needs to reach out to her family and embrace that side of her. Like, there's so much they could have done. There is so much meat to chew on. So many better ways to present this than Lacey Evans standing. I don't know if she's in front of American flag, but it feels like there's red, white, and blue everywhere. Wearing like fatigues and just looking into the camera telling her story. This was a huge botch on their part. Big failure by WWE. Uh, Raquel Rodriguez, I'm going to grade all this stuff together. Uh, Raquel Rodriguez got a full video package that she should have received when she debuted two weeks ago. She makes her in-ring debut next week. This was a step in the right direction, but it does not excuse the bullshit from last week where Natalia basically insulted her to her face and Raquel did nothing about it. Zia Lee also cut a promo backstage saying she was the protector, but no one is worthy of her protection. So now she only protects herself. So now she's a heel. At least they kind of explained it, unlike what AEW did with Red Velvet, where she just showed up and became one of the baddies. This should really be the bare minimum. Like, literally, this is the bare minimum, what WWE did with Xia Li. Now, how about we let her appear on television regularly and actually wrestle in matches? That would be fun. She's been there four months. Pure frustration with her. So, my overall grade for all three of these is a provisional good. The proof is in the pudding. Lacey has to return hot. Raquel Rodriguez needs to look dominant, and Zia Lee needs to get on damn television. If all three of those happen, this is good. If not, it's bad and basically meaningless. And last today, we have Dana Brooke and Reggie against Tamina and Akira Dezawa in a mixed tag team match. R-Truth did group couples counseling and then guest refereed the mixed tag team match that we've already seen like five times, by the way. They got married last week. They're already in group counseling. Dana and Tamina... I guess like considered kissing each other at one point. So they teased that again. Coming out of the wedding, that wasn't received well. I don't know why they did it again. Tazawa dodged the seated senton and hit a roundhouse kick and then nailed his awesome flying senton on Reggie for the clean one, two, three. I I was shocked that like we got to see Akira Tazawa actually wrestle and do his impressive moves. 
After the bell, R-Truth tried to count his own roll-up, but Dana kicked out and got really mad at him. This whole thing was entirely too long. Not the match, that was far too short, but between the video package from last week, the backstage segment, and then the introductions and the match, it was just like a total waste of, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. As I said last week, for some reason, every other week they do this, I don't mind it as much as the one that precedes it. So I hated last week. This week I just thought was bad, not ugly. Uh, Worse than anything else though, this whole 24-7 title picture, this whole storyline, it's a colossal waste of my time that is going absolutely nowhere, okay? Use these people, the Reggies, the Akira Tozawas, the Dana Brooks, the Taminas, use them as fodder for the other wrestlers that you're trying to get over. Instead, you have them contained in their own little universe here. And it doesn't make any sense. If you want to do the 24-7 storylines here and there, feel free to do them here and there. No problem with it. But also allow these people who are not otherwise being used to Zawa to go and fight Veer Mahan and get killed by him. Allow Reggie to get squashed by Veer. Allow similar people in similar positions on SmackDown to get killed by Gunther. Like, have Dana Brooke um, do a job to Asuka. Show Asuka looking strong. Let Becky beat her in a one-off match just to show that she's powerful again, right? Same with Tamina. There are so many ways to utilize all these women and, and uh, sorry, women, men and women uh, in the low card and WWE just refuses to do it. Instead, they give us repetitive low card storylines that we don't really want. Even if occasionally they're funny and they make us chuckle, most weeks they're terrible. They gotta figure out either a better way to utilize these people and the 24-7 title or just ditch the title finally, get it off television. It is not doing anything for anyone. And that is really it for the good, the bad, and the ugly, which means it is it for this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. There was, of course, plenty that happened in WWE this week, but as you can tell, us breaking down the entire episode, outside of Roman Reigns showing up again and two really big returns in Asuka and Mustafa Ali, there really wasn't that much to chew on. WrestleMania Backlash is Backlash, right? It is a rematch show. So we're really just regurgitating a lot of the same stuff we got on the road to WrestleMania. Yes, there are some twists and turns, of course, with Judgment Day forming and now Oscar returning and certain other people debuting over the last couple of weeks. There is some freshness here, no doubt about it. But what I like or what I would desire badly coming out of WrestleMania is just a stop and then a start with new storylines, feuds, and exciting stuff. And we just really haven't gotten too much of that. Maybe after Backlash, given we're about to run into Hell in a Cell, Money in the Bank, SummerSlam, the UK show, and then I believe a Saudi Arabia show after that. So they're going to do four stadium shows in a row uh, this summer into the early fall. Given that's what's about to happen, okay, maybe they're going to use Backlash as like the point to end some feuds and restart other stuff. But to me, it seems pretty obvious that some of this stuff is going to continue, namely probably Cody Rhodes and Seth Rollins and probably Edge and AJ Styles, not to mention there is certainly the potential for Rousey and Charlotte Flair to continue and a couple other things. So look, um, there's still plenty going on in the world of WWE and we will be back one week from today with our WrestleMania Backlash Ultimate Preview. We'll break down everything on the card. Of course, we will also talk about everything that happened 
in the week of WWE of Cross SmackDown, Raw, news items, and all of that stuff. But between now and next Tuesday, we will be back on Thursday for our next episode talking all things AEW and NXT. AEW, of course, had their huge announcement last week doing the super show with New Japan Pro Wrestling called Forbidden Door. NXT is building towards, I believe it's going to be next week. They're doing a spring break in television special. So it will be interesting to see what feuds uh, develop and what matches are made on this Tuesday show. We're going to talk about all that from AEW and NXT plus plenty more coming up on our Thursday episode here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. But before we get out of here, a couple of reminders. Of course, number one, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Episode drops. You can send in DMs and comments that I will read and answer on the show. And it's just a great way for all of us to interact and talk professional wrestling. Do not forget, if you want to send me sound drops or video clips that you believe should be on our soundboard, please, you can tweet them or DM them to us at Getting Overcast on Twitter, or you can email us gettingoverpod at gmail.com. But before I get out of here, there is one more reminder. You know it's coming. The Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It's so be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Leave a five-star rating on Apple. Also leave a review. Tell people why you love the show, why you're getting overhead, why they should listen and subscribe. And as you guys have heard across our last couple episodes, every single time a five-star review is left, the Silver King reads it here on the show. That is it for today. But you know what? This has been a short show. So let's bring someone else in. Allow them to say goodbye for a change. Elizabeth, come on, oh, oh. We got something going that's oh, really big. Oh, yeah. Look in the video scope right now and tell them about my show madness. Tell them how strong it is and tell them where we're going. Yeah. We into the twilight zone. Yeah. And Hulk Hogan's got no chance, does he? No. no. Does anybody have a chance against the Macho Man Randy no. Savage? No, Am I the greatest wrestler, past, present, and future that ever lived? You are. Okay, now say goodbye. Goodbye. Say goodbye. Bye. Okay, now get out of here. Well, that's right a little now. rough, Randy. Yeah, but it is rough. Yeah, wrestling is a rough sport. And I am the roughest one in the sport. I am the number one wrestler in the world today. Tell Hulk Hogan that. Tell I will. Well, thank you, Randy Savage. And thank you all for listening. A little blast from the past there with Macho Man and Mean Gene for myself. This is the Silver King, leaving you with three final words. Bye for now.